The Word of God says in Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 35, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But, as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So that heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. We dive into the seventh plague on Egypt, the seventh blow. 
And as you can see, it's quite a portion that we have to cover. We enter the seventh plague, and you should keep in mind that uh, the first nine plagues, of course, preceding that tenth plague, which eventually we get to the, the Passover itself, uh, in these nine first plagues, there is a series going on or a pattern, three sets of three that take place. And you'll Take note that the first, the fourth, and the seventh, in other words, the first in each of the first three sets, it takes place in the morning. Then the second in each of the sets of three will start off with Moses getting instructions from God where it says, go into Pharaoh. And then the third in each set is going to take place without any warning to Pharaoh. So as we hit number seven, we are beginning the final set of three in the first nine plagues. Now, I want us to get in our frame of mind um, where Pharaoh's heart is in all of this. And I don't know of a better way to explain it right now than that of Burger King. Now, you might think, what do hamburgers have to do with Pharaoh? a whopper and a unrepentant man. And yet I think we can see a parallel taking place. Uh, if you look at Burger King back in 1974, they came up with a slogan that many people still know today, and that is have it your way. And over time, it's morphed a little bit. It went from that to your way right away, I think in 1991. And then it went from there to when you have it your way, it just tastes better. And then Burger King, where you're the boss. Then they just shorten it up to be your way. And then it went from be your way to just your way in 2015. And then just recently, they switched it up to you rule. Talk about shortening it, you rule. But all of their slogans have had a common denominator, and that is that you are on the throne when you enter a Burger King, when you're about to order that famous Whopper. Well, you see, this is exactly where Pharaoh's heart is as we come to this plague. And, and in this plague, we're really going to see what I'm going to call this episode, counterfeit confession. Counterfeit confession. And, and this is not just about Pharaoh. This is about our hearts. And so I pray we'll have open hearts to see, do we have this Burger King attitude? Do we have it where we rule, where it's our way, where uh, it, things taste better when we have it our way, where uh, we are entitled to the way that we think about things rather than the way that God thinks about things? And so what does it look like? Counterfeit confession. Now, there's a, a few things we want to do in covering the ground of this um, quite epically long account of a plague. In fact, the longest one that we've seen up until now. So let's look at three things. We want to look at the attitude of the rebellious. We want to look at the assessment of the ruins. And then finally, the anatomy of false repentance. And that's going to be very key, this anatomy of false repentance. But let's begin where this account begins, back in verses 13 and 14. And the first part, the attitude of the rebellious uh, after the Lord says, rise up early in the morning, like we said, the first one comes in the morning in each set. Look at verse 14. The Lord says, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The words here, this time, which appear in verse 14, it comes from the Hebrew 
pa-am-a, which means a stroke or an anvil or a hoofbeat. In other words, this very phrase is pointing to a rapid succession. It is pointing to um, some kind of uh, succession of blows, like something which is continuous, I guess I should say, like a blacksmith who's battering down on that metal. Um, See, God has been hammering on the heart of Pharaoh. It's this continual going at it. And what's he doing? He's rejecting the working of God. In Psalm 75, verse 7, we read, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Again, over in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, we know that he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And in this case, we see him doing it, but not all at once, but rather this continuous, successive blow at Pharaoh. Now, the precise wording, though, of verse 14 is significant. Literally, what God is saying to Pharaoh in this verse is, I'm going to send the full force of my plagues against your heart. So if you think about that, I'm going to send the full force of my plagues against your heart. We have two things taking place here. The first thing we have taking place is a word play. And the second thing we have taking place is a world view. So first, what is the word play here in verse 14? Well, he says, I will send the full force of my plagues against your heart. The the use of this verb to send out, shalach, it's actually a word play um, on Exodus 9.13. So you just go back one here, and, and the Lord says to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. You see, The first part of it is God saying, you let my people go. In other words, send out my people. But he's not he's not obeying God. Pharaoh's not obeying God and sending out his people. So what's God going to do? God's going to send on him his plagues. You're not going to send me what I want. Well, I'm going to send you what you need. And so we have a word play happening, but then there's a world view as well. And this worldview is key for us to get into uh, the mindset of that day so that we understand even the impact of these plagues. See, there was a belief in Egypt that um, Pharaoh's very heart would have been the foundation of human progress, the foundation of their society. Um, And and this is really what brings more significance when we read a phrase that he's going to send these plagues where? On you yourself. Uh, He's literally sending them against this foundation. He's saying, I'm going to pull the foundation, the very fabric of your society from out under you. Of course, if you really want to get into Pharaoh's heart, um, well, you can just go back to episode 22 and you'll see that we discuss that very much in detail. But here we see the target. He targets him with this wordplay going on and with a worldview. But look at verse 17. Why? Because it says in verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And this word exalt, salal, it means to cast up or to lift up. Now, this is significant because there's actually a word picture here with this idea of exalt. He's exalting himself against two, against my people. 
So this is the picture of like a dam that's being built or a rampart. It's also connected to the word that they would have used for a highway. And a highway in that day would have just been a road which rises above the surrounding terrain. Hence, it's a highway, not necessarily a place where you can go fast that many of us think of as highways, but a highway, a, a level terrain which is raised above other terrains. What is Pharaoh doing? Well, well, the word of God here says that he's exalting himself. He's raising himself above. Another uh, picture of this word is it means to oppose or to raise a mound or a bank of rock or dirt. And that's, again, that same picture of highway, but just phrased in a different way. This is what he's doing. He's raising himself and ultimately he's obstructing the people of God from the worship of God. He is keeping others from worshiping the true and living God. He's keeping others from obedience. And so what are we going to see in this play? We're going to see what does God do when someone stands in the way of worship? What does God do when someone obstructs others from access to him? It's a very serious thing. And I would like you just to, to consider for a moment, is there anything in your life where you're exalting yourself, where you're raising yourself up, where you're obstructing others from seeing the Lord Jesus Christ either in you or, or, or maybe it's just even allowing them to uh, be facilitated in their walk with the Lord? And again, the Lord shares his glory with no man. So therefore, if we're exalting ourselves, then in some way or another, we are distracting others from the Lord Jesus. We see warnings of such in Obadiah 1.4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Or Matthew 23 verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And, and so Pharaoh, what do we see here? Well, we see ultimately that this is exactly what he's doing, and God's going to do what his word promises. Pharaoh will soon be humbled. Now, as a fascinating little side note, if you get over to Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 15, the children of Israel one day will be accused of doing the very thing that Pharaoh is doing, that they've forgotten God, they're making offerings to false gods, uh, and it says, they made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and to walk into side roads, not the highway. And then it says in Isaiah 62, 10, that one day, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. One day, again, that that highway of holiness, a highway to know the Lord God would be put in place. And so we see, we see that uh, no one is exempt from this warning, but we also see that one day, that highway of holiness, there'll be no obstruction as we enjoy his presence forever. But there are some questions that we should ask as we consider all of this. I think we should ask, what is God seeking to communicate to us? Um, even when you go back to verses 15 and 16, which I slightly jumped over, we see that the Lord says, By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. He's saying this is not a difficult thing. I could have given a magic carpet and pulled you out of Egypt in a second. I could have zapped you with one blow and destroyed you easily. So what am I doing? But look at verse 16. For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, there's, God's got a, a missionary focus going on in these 10 plagues. Uh, one, maybe it would have been forgotten. But 10, 
God is pursuing worshipers. And part of pursuing these worshipers is he's tearing down the false sources of worship, which we've looked at during every plague and will continue to do so. It's interesting in Psalm 78, verses 47 through 50, we read that he destroyed their vines with hail, their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. And then how does all that tie together? Well, Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 to 22. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Uh, you see, there's this, this day coming when he says, you're going to tell of all the things the Lord did. And each blow will tell of his character, of his goodness, of his mercy, and yet also of his wrath. And we see this happen even in Joshua 9.9, when the Gibeonites meet up with Joshua, they speak of the fame of the Lord. In fact, they say, we've heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And, and even Rahab mentions similar things. Um, you've got other examples, the Philistines. The Philistines in 1 Samuel 4 um, will we'll speak of these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So it gets around, whether it be the Gibeonites, whether it be the Philistines, um, whether it be the Canaanites, like with Rahab. They knew the works of God in Egypt. Uh, in verse 18, though, a comment on the language being employed here is useful. Notice it says, uh, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Uh, in other words, we've never seen anything like this before. Well, this is very intentional language because uh, pharaohs like to boast, and it, it's very documented that pharaohs would say things like, for instance, Thutmose III, he wanted to boast in his accomplishment, and he specifically wrote that he what he was doing was more than all the things that were in the country since it was founded. In other words, this was the language that pharaohs would use. So what's God doing? God is exalting himself above. I don't know if that language is, is proper because he, really all he's doing is, is declaring who he is. He's not exalting himself above. He is above. But he's saying this is like you've never seen uh, since the foundation until now. He's using pharaonic language to, again, declare his greatness. Um, and, and this is the expression that God used to describe the seventh plague. And it makes sense. Why? Because... The Egyptians would have had it in their mind that these plagues, that these storms, in this case the hail and fire, was coming from the gods. There's another note, um, uh, and again, we're not trying to be light in this. I'm not trying to give you some kind of sermon that says, wow, that's a feel-good message. I want you to dive into God's Word. So really, as these nuggets are shared with you, please take them and go back to the Word and dig deeper, journal about it, and see where the Lord takes you, and then share it with us. Share it in the comments on whatever platform you're watching it on or, or listening to it or share it with friends. Have a Bible study over it, but please understand, I, I want to just give you some nuggets, and then you go back to the Word of God and be a Berean and dig deeper. But it's interesting too, because 
the Lord calls us a very heavy hail. Again, I think we have uh, ironic language happening here. Uh, that word heavy hail is this uh, word also used for Pharaoh's heavy heart, translated in English as a hard heart. So he's like, you have a hard heart, I'm going to give you heavy hail. You won't send my people out, I'm going to send in my hail. And so we see this back and forth happening. And of course, it's not really a battle per se, because it's not really even a fight. God is above Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not to be compared, but I want you to understand that there is this back and forth happening in the language. And, and another question, why hail and fire? Wouldn't hail just be enough? But I think there's even more to it than merely just that. Um, because when you think about hail and fire, well, we can come back to this in, in a little bit, but you're combining two elements that represent different gods. So it's either an attack of the gods or else they've got their gods wrong. This is not just one god that's ticked off in Pharaoh's mind because there's one god of fire. There's another god of hail. What's happening with both of these now coming in, in, in at one time? Or could it even be that two gods that are opposed at times, a god of fire and a god of hail, are now collaborating? That doesn't make sense. Well, a lot of questions would be uh, coming up in Pharaoh's mind or in the mind of those who worship these false deities. Um, these, the verses 20 and 21 do bring out another angle here. It says, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Friends, pause. Because this verse really encapsulates all of us. There's really only two categories of people listening today and in our world today. Those who fear the word of the Lord and those who do not pay attention to the word of the Lord. Literally, we could say those who do not set their heart to the word. And I just wonder, which one are you? Proverbs 14.27 tell us that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. But we know that there's always these two sides. Um, remember Acts 28, 24. Some were convinced by what he said, others disbelieved. Uh, this really all goes back to Exodus 5, 3, when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Well, are we going to believe the word of the Lord, or are we going to reject the word of the Lord? Not pay attention to. It doesn't even say they've rejected. It says they didn't even pay attention to it. Uh, and this really comes over to Joshua 24, 15. Uh, remember Joshua, as he stands between those two mounts, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so, even in the country of Egypt, God's word did not return void uh, or empty. People were affected by the word of God. And we see here that there are those who respond to God's word. And of course, when they leave Egypt, we're going to see it's a mixed multitude. There are Egyptians who now believe in this Lord God of Israel. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 remind us that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose 
and shall succeed in the thing I sent it for which I sent it. Uh, we could go on. There's so many more examples of this. Acts 17:34, we see mixed responses. Philippians 4:21, even as he's closing out this book to the Philippians, he says, "Greet every saint in Christ Jesus." And then he goes on, especially those of Caesar's household. What's the point? Even in Caesar's household, there are those who are responding to the word. So we see the attitude of the rebellious, which comes out in this first portion, really the rebellious one being Pharaoh. But now let's look at the assessment of the ruins, the assessment of the ruins. What really are the effects of this plague, this blow as it hits Egypt? In verses 23 and 24, we see Moses stretch out his staff toward heaven. The Lord sends thunder and hail. Fire ran down to the earth. The Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. And there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The first thing I want us to do here is we need to work through the conflict. Then we're going to work through the conundrum. And I think it's a conundrum, actually, that you're already familiar with. And then finally, we'll work through the calendar. So first, working through the conflict itself. I mentioned it, fire and ice, two gods in opposition. And unless there's a Lord God who's above, who has power to bring together whatever elements he chooses to bring together. See, the words being used in English are... Uh, it can be kind of confusing, but I, I want to tell you what it literally, how it literally reads. This is what the pulpit commentary says. There was hail, and in the midst of the hail, a fire enfolding itself. Okay, so same terminology is used over in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4 when speaking of the whirlwind um, accompanying the presence of the Lord, maybe you remember. And it says, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Uh, what's probably being described in the storm over Egypt um, is absolute chaos of lightning flashing everywhere, um, and yet this uniqueness of this hail happening simultaneously. Again, I don't know what exactly this looks like. I do know this hail is only mentioned 29 times in scripture, and 20 of them are here in the Exodus or referring to this account of the Exodus. In fact, one other example of this hail would be over in Joshua chapter 10, verse 11, um, when the enemies defeated, they're in full retreat, and then what did the Lord do to those who were fleeing? He sends his hail before them, and it says that uh, more died from the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And so I want us to see that God's putting on this powerful display that we need to understand, that we need to work through this conflict. This is not a normal storm. This is not a normal occurrence. It is very divine. It's also interesting, and we'll keep coming back to this in the plagues, but there are two more displays of this type of hail in Revelation, in the first trumpet judgment, in Revelation 8-7, we read the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And then, in the final bowl judgment, in Revelation 16-21, it says, Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." You understand, a talent is about 100 to 120 pounds. All right, so, um, and, and here we have 100 pounds each. So we're talking a talent. Um, 
have you ever held a medicine ball which is 30 pounds i mean that is a heavy ball now picture that more than three times that weight what you've got is these type of hailstones falling from heaven of course they're wreaking havoc and destruction and so i want us to get in our mind that this happened in pharaoh's day but God says it's going to happen again, and, and I would say uh, even more intense. So understand, we're not just reading about history. We're also previewing the future. And again, our God has not changed. Don't think that because he, uh, we're now in 2023 that somehow this is a different God. No, he's the same God. Yes, he's merciful, and that's why you're able to still listen to the word of God and repent. But beware, there is a deadline. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And we can even see examples in history where where major hailstones of close to such nature occurred. Um, certainly, one was in France, another one up in Liverpool in England, but I'm not going to take the time to go into those examples. Feel free to write me if you want some more sources about these types of uh, storms in the past. You also just need to acknowledge or understand that there are gods of Egypt being targeted. Um, which gods are they? You know, we, we sometimes just throw out a, a lot of different Egyptian gods. I'm not sure which specific one was focused on. You've got Nut, the sky goddess, uh, or stars, the cosmos. You've got Osiris, who they would say controls the levels of the Nile. Therefore, it was like this agricultural god. And we see in just a minute here that, that their crops are destroyed. Um, so he couldn't protect the crops. You've got Set or Seth, the god of storms. He couldn't prevent the storm. You've got Ra, the god of the sky. You've got Shu. There's a lot of gods or goddesses that we could um, point at and say, whoa, they failed. Well, the point is they all failed because they cannot stand in the presence of the true and living God. But let's get to um, some more details on this. It says that uh, the hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. And then in verse 31, it says, The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the ember were not struck down, for they are latent coming up. Uh, see, there's a special, see, seemingly a special reference to this back in even verse 22, where it says that the storm struck everything growing in the fields of Egypt. Now, the, the Hebrew word used here for vegetation, asheb, is the same word that's used back in Genesis 1, 11, and 12, when God tells the land to produce vegetation. Uh, I think this is important because, again, what do we see? We see that God is destroying the very things that he once created, every plant, every animal, every person out in the fields. But this brings up a conundrum. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 9, verse 6, just earlier in that same chapter, and maybe you remember the podcast, it, we, we read that the next day the Lord did this thing, and that was sending that moraine on the, the livestock. And it says, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. So if all of the Egyptian livestock died in the fifth plague, well, how are there still livestock remaining to be struck down by the seventh plague? 
And this is a great question. Um, so there's a lot of different scenarios by which you can explain this conundrum. And I'm not even going to give you all the scenarios. All I want is if there's a skeptic that, that doesn't want to get over this barrier and listen, I just want you to understand there's a lot of different possibilities. Some suggest the fifth plague um, mentions specifically cattle in the field, horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, sheep, and it excludes other animals, animals uh, that still could be killed later on, animals like goats, whatever. Others note that because God warned Egypt in the seventh plague, maybe he did the same before, and some of the animals were brought in and they weren't killed. Those might be a stretch, I don't know, but um, maybe a bit more likely is the spatial limit of it all. Um, it was specifically noted that the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field. So in the field, uh, maybe animals that were in shelters, maybe animals that were inside um, were preserved, were immune from the lethal effects of this moraine that hit. Um, there's other options that might even seem more viable. One would be that the Egyptians, after they experienced the death of their animals, used their immense wealth to purchase livestock from surrounding nations like Ethiopia or Libya or Canaan. And you can keep in mind, too, that the plagues probably didn't happen. Bam, 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 bam. Just one after another. Some of them may have been extremely close, but I do kind of think it happened over most likely the stretch of maybe up to even eight, nine months. Um, there's other possibilities. Maybe the Egyptians went to Goshen and com commandeered livestock from the children of Israel. It's possible. There's a lot of possibilities. One other possibility, though, to throw out there is the language translators use because context is vital when you consider the use of a word. Um, if I said, I ate all the spaghetti, well, I don't think anybody is thinking that I actually consumed all the spaghetti that exists from Rome, Italy down to Buenos Aires, Argentina. No, you say you ate all the spaghetti, maybe all the spaghetti on your plate, maybe all the spaghetti that you made in the house. I don't know. But you didn't eat all the spaghetti. No one thinks I did. Um, or, or maybe after some great home loss, um, a commentator says, all the fans are going home unhappy. That's not true. All the fans are not going home unhappy. There were fans rooting for the other team there. They're very happy about this upset. But the point is the general mood all doesn't have to be always in an absolute sense, it could denote a very large quantity. And in the fifth plague, the mortality rate of these animals was so high um, of what remained in the herd. So in comparison, maybe all the animals in the field died. Um, again, I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm saying there are different ways that we can approach this text and ask questions. Um, maybe the best way to translate it, and, and some do exactly this, could be all manner of livestock of the Egyptians died. So um, again, you, you can go back and, and think through this, but I want you to understand that there's many different things for us to consider. We also should work through the calendar. See, the time of the year is believed to be about mid-February of this particular plague. And we say that with, with relative confidence because it's telling us exactly where the agricultural cycle was at this very point. In Egypt, the cattle are set sent into the open country typically from uh, January to April when grass is abundant. And I lived in Egypt for many years, and, and there really is a distinct pattern to these seasons. They remain in the stalls for the rest of the year. But the Word of God says the only crops that were left standing were the wheat and the emmer. We find out in verses 31 and 32 that the wheat and the emmer were left, which is in itself a message of God's grace, God's goodness to um, 
to all. See, emmer or spelt, um, some translations have, is like a, a species of wheat. Um, it's a grain with these split kernels. It's considered inferior quality, and uh, that's because the chaff actually clings to the grain, so it's harder to remove. And uh, it actually, they said oftentimes that this was... Um, Herodotus said that this was often used by the Egyptians to make bread. But this is also interesting because it, it helps us confirm the historicity of Exodus and date the plague of the hail. So paintings um, from ancient Egypt actually show that farmers were simultaneously harvesting both the barley and the flax as being described in Exodus. So again, it's just lining up with even the artwork we see in ancient Egypt. So January would be typically when harvest took place, and uh, and then wheat harvest would take place a couple months later. Um, and so if you think about it like this, the barley's in the ear, it ripens in February in northern Egypt, and it was the food for the poor and sometimes for horses too. So I just want you to kind of get an understanding of the calendar happening. I hope it's not too much information, but at the same time, I know that there is a lot to process here. Now, let's talk about the flax for a minute too, because I think this is significant. You'll notice the flax and the barley were struck down. Why? What's significant about flax being struck down? Flax was used to make linen, and this linen, some say, was used exclusively by the priests, although the tombs of the pharaohs also show that linen was used for their burial cloths. Um, and, and there's more to it, even linen seeds that are found in tombs, and, and there are some thoughts on that. But we see linen being used for burial cloths all the way to the, the, uh, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. But the destruction of the flax, think about this. It was a reminder of God's attitude on our own righteousness. If this was used by the priest for their clothing, this linen, well, what's God doing? He's saying, you can't come in your own clothing. You can't come with what you're, you want to wear. You've got to come in my righteousness. The same thing is true today. Anything that we're seeking to dress ourselves in to approach God, he says, that doesn't work. Only the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. What do we read later on in Isaiah? Our righteousness is but filthy rags. Um, so praise God for his son, Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, who clothes us in what he has done. And so we can't save ourselves. Only the Lord can do it. And this picture is vivid here as the flax is destroyed. There's one more thing I want to mention on this point. And I I know this is a bit of a long episode, but uh, stick with me. There are three things about what God's doing behind the scenes, even in what we see concerning the flax and the barley, um, and, and then even what we see with uh, the wheat and the emmer. The first thing is, notice God's preservation, his preservation of the tender plants. Now, typically, hail would destroy the weakest stalks, right? Uh, not merely the growing stronger ones, but here, overwhelming force and yet great compassion. The weaker ones were saved. And, and so notice God's preservation. Now, we're going to see in the next plague, spoiler alert, even that's going to be destroyed. But it's not yet another chance for repentance. And we also see God's provision, provision for Egypt. He could have taken away all their food sources. But notice again, God's grace in leaving them something for tomorrow. So God's preservation, God's provision, and then finally God's purpose. See, there's purpose in all of this. God's not through with the plagues. Uh, not not through with what he's sending into this land, sending upon Pharaoh's heart. Um, so what's he doing? He's leaving more fodder 
for the locust to devour. So God's preservation, provision, and purpose. But um, as we think about these things, we come to our final point. Our final point is the anatomy of false repentance. And this is where we want to close things out because this is a this is really the heart of the issue. It, it seems that Pharaoh actually repents in some way or another here. In verse 27, he sends, he calls Moses and Aaron, and he says, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall no longer, you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I'll stretch my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. See, Moses knew this was not true repentance, but do we know it? What's the difference between true repentance and Pharaoh's repentance? Well, all the way back in the plague of the frogs, the second plague, you'll remember Pharaoh said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I'll let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Um, John Currid, a commentator, said this, individuals who approached Pharaoh were commanded to prostrate themselves, smelling the earth, crawling on the ground, while invoking this perfect God and exalting his beauty. Now, that's what Pharaoh required. Pharaoh required this kind of worship as people approached him. Now, what's Pharaoh doing? Well, it might be the first time ever in Pharaoh's life that he's actually admitting fault. He says, this time I have sinned. But what is the anatomy of false repentance? Well, there, there's a few things. I think there's four things I want to mention here. The first thing is the direction of his confession. Notice Pharaoh did not confess his sins to God. He asked Moses to pray for him. In other words, he was unwilling to actually humble himself before God. Just like John Curran said, people that came to Pharaoh had to approach in this humble way. Pharaoh's not even willing to go directly to God. He's just willing to talk about it with someone else. See, Pharaoh's belief in the power of prayer, it might actually, in some way, um, show his guilt all the more. I like the way Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, in certain instances, the man's hope in prayer is the result of a condemning faith. There's a justifying faith and a condemning faith. What, say you? Does faith ever condemn men? Yes, when men have faith enough to know that there is a God who sends judgments upon them, that nothing can remove those judgments but the hand that sent them, and that prayer moves that hand. There are persons who yet never pray themselves, but eagerly cry to friends, entreat the Lord for me. <laughs> Powerful. But see, a truly repentant man falls at the feet of God in humility, recognizing he is a helpless sinner and in need of the mercy of a loving, but also a holy God direction of his confession. The second aspect is a dismissal in his confession. See, there's an unwillingness to even listen to others or to seek the advice of, of, of others um, who, or those who sought otherwise, I should say. You see, in the next plague, Pharaoh's servants are going to say, how long? How long will this man be a snare for us? We've, we've already seen the magicians back in plague number three say, this is the finger of God. But what's he doing? He's confessing but he's not listening to others. He's confessing, but he's not willing to say, uh, let's go with what you're saying. Uh, so there's a dismissal. There's also the demands of his confession. See, Pharaoh's saying, I'm wrong, but notice what he does. He continues to negotiate. He says, okay, you go and stop this plague, and I'll let them go. In other words, there are demands in his confession. 
Con true confession does not have conditions. You say, God, you're holy. God, you're right. I'm wrong. And what? You're falling on the mercy seat of God. Well, praise the Lord that the blood of Jesus Christ is sprinkled there. See, in verse 27, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron. He says, this time I've sinned, right? And then he says in verse 28, plead with me, plead with the Lord, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Um, but what's he doing? He sends them out that they might stop the hail. And when they do, hmm, there's no change. And finally, the, the final thing is there's a disregard in his confession. He was willing to admit a sin, but not admit that he's a sinner. There's a big difference. See, we can easily say, yeah, I was wrong. But that's not the same as saying my heart is deceitful. My heart is wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And, and see, the, re the reality is when we come to the Lord, we're not just coming confessing a sin or two. We're confessing that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Where do we start with the other sins that Pharaoh committed? Now, I don't need to go around focusing on Pharaoh's sins. I have enough myself that, that, that I could start with. But obviously, we've seen a lot. We've seen baby boys he tried to drown in the Nile. We see him manipulating the midwives, forcing them to make bricks without straw, hardening his heart many times over. It's not an isolated incident. Pharaoh's heart was the issue, not just his hand. And the same is true with us. Like I just quoted Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So Pharaoh was not turning away from his sins. He was sorry that he was getting plagued with hail, but uh, he was not truly sorry for his sin itself. And obviously that proof comes at the end. Now, before I close, I just want to acknowledge he's not the only one in this category or, or the club, we could say, as, as uh, David Guzik says, the I have sinned club. In fact, there's um, many that are on the same list. And let me say, many of them had a very false repentance. You've got some beautiful examples, like David, who on a few occasions said this very thing. Psalm 41.4, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. I have sinned. Uh, others like Job and Job 33, 27, I have sinned and perverted what is right. Or the younger son in Luke 15 comes home to his father and says, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Even Nehemiah identifies with his people's sin in chapter 1, verse 6 and says, both my father's house and I have sinned. Great examples. But on the flip side, Pharaoh, we've got Balaam who was clearly double-minded and said the same thing. We've got Achan who says, I have sinned after being confronted about the spoils he took after being told not to take anything. We, we see Saul, who uh, seemed to be insincere and said it more than once, uh, like in 1 Samuel 15, 30, I have sinned, but yet honor me now, <laughs> please, before the elders of my people. I've sinned, but lift me up, exalt me. And finally, we've got one more example of the I have sinned category, and that's Judas Iscariot. And Judas says it, a confusing example. Uh, we don't have time to go into that one right now, but one who acknowledges, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. See, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Pharaoh, he wanted a respite from the wrath of God, but he didn't want repentance from his own rebellion. See, Pharaoh wanted to cling to his ways rather than part with his past. And so we see the final verse, verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. But the real question is, what about you? Are you living a life of counterfeit confession, 
counterfeit repentance, saying, I'm sorry, but no true change because there's no true falling at the feet of Jesus Christ, saying, you are truth, and I need you not just to save me from my sin, but from the very fact that I am a sinner. I need new life. See, friends, he's willing to give it to those who truly confess who they are, but more than that, who he is, the only one who can save. We're going to talk more about this in days to come, but we are certainly out of time for today. So please check out www.intoyourbible.org for more, our YouTube page for other videos. Please subscribe so you don't miss episodes and share it with friends um, that it maybe could bless, encourage, challenge, have small groups together and discuss these things. And uh, just remember until next time, this has been Into Your Bible. And Into Your Bible is a place where we seek a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.